Good morning. Um, like Dave said, for those who don't know me, my name is Kent, um, and I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And I just want to welcome everyone again for those who are with us in person and those who are um, online. To open up this morning, I, I want to take you back to 490 B.C. We're going to have a history lesson this morning. It's the setting of the plain of Marathon in Greece. The Persians are invading the, are invading the Greeks, and it seems like this is going to be a walk and the park battle for the Persians, who had about 50,000 men for battle versus only roughly about 20,000 Greeks. Like I said, it seems like a walk in a park battle for the Persians. Long story short, the Greeks outsmart the Persians and cause them to flee out of Marathon. There were about 6,400 Persians who died to only 192 Greeks. Now, it was an incredible win for the Greek army. And many Greek mythology legends grew out from this battle. One legend including, included the Greek god Pan. He was known for his frightening scream as it would send his enemies into a terror. And this is where we get the word panic from. Now, panic is probably something that we have all felt, especially during this year of 2020. Now, this, this Greek god Pan, uh, he was, he was a described as a goat man. He had legs, feet, and horns like a goat, but everything else was that of a human. It's no wonder why Pan is associated with causing panic in his heart, in the heart of his enemies. Now, some of you are probably thinking, why in the world is a Christian pastor talking about Greek mythology? Now, it's important because it gives us a better context for our passage this morning. So if you have Bibles with you, please open up to Luke 9, verses 18 through 27. For those who may have just uh, started attending Crosspoint or, or maybe visiting this morning, we're going through the book of Luke this past summer. We took a pause to do a, a series called Reset, and then we did a series on 1 Thessalonians. And today, we get back into Luke to continue our teaching uh, as we look at Luke 9, 18 through 27. Now, in this part of Jesus' ministry, he is finishing up his Galilean ministry, which is uh, more the northern area of, of where uh, he does ministry. And we enter this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. Now, there's three parts to his conversation. The first part is confessing Jesus as Lord. The second is confessing the true Christ. And confessing Christ comes with a cost. So, our first point, confessing Jesus as Lord. We see this in our first section of our text. So if you have Luke 9, meet me there as I'll begin reading from verse 18. While he was praying in private, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, I just want to stop there before we continue reading because um, there's an important thing to notice, and we don't see it here in Luke, but there's a parallel passage of the same story in Matthew. Now, before I read this parallel passage, I just want to say that because there's different passages and different gospels that talk about the same event that may give different details, does not mean there's a contradiction. Some people will use that as an argument that the gospels contradict. It does not contradict, but rather gives a better picture, a more full picture of what actually happened. We have to remember that each gospel is written for a different audience, 
for a different time, for a different purpose. So there's going to be some different details, but each of them supplement one another. So let's keep this in mind while we read Matthew. That um, It's not a contradiction. It is a supplement to give a better picture. In Matthew 16, 13, in the same kind of story, we read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the difference that we see from Matthew's gospel, from Luke's gospel, is that Matthew gives a setting. And this setting is super important to understand the story. Setting is Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is, of course, a Roman city, um, as Romans are now in rule over this particular region. Um, And the the Roman governor uh, came and established this name for this city. But uh, before then, it was ruled by the Greeks up until about 31 B.C. And the city was named, in Greek, was named uh, Panias because it was associated with the Greek god Pan. Now, this is where our Greek mythology lesson kind of comes into um, full circle, and it will continue throughout um, this morning, so stay with me. Okay, it was called Panias because there was a cave that was thought to be the birthplace of Pan. A sanctuary where pagan worshipers can make sacrifices. And there was also other temples that, and, and different pagan altars that were in Caesarea Philippi. One of them was to Augustus. And there was one to various other gods. But Pan is the um, important one in this story because this is most likely where Jesus is having his conversation. Now, think about this. Jesus is asking this question in this setting in the pagan culture that him and his disciples are currently in. So going to this place would be the perfect location to ask the question, who do the crowds say that I am? Because of all the worldly influences around them. Now, let's continue reading in Luke um, to see what their answer is. Luke 6.19 says this, They answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Now, here we see that this answer given by the disciples at this time is is one that seems um, to portray the crowd being confused. And and what's um, interesting is that the crowds were just as confused as Herod was at that time. If we go back a little bit in our passage to Luke 7 through 9, we see this about Herod when he's talking about Jesus. Verse 7 says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on concerning Jesus. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead, some that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. It's the exact Same answer that the overarching crowds say who Jesus is. It's no wonder that the leader of that region would also reflect what the crowds are saying in that region. Now, there's three different aspects of Jesus' ministry that people focus on so much that they missed the big picture. They missed the purpose of Christ. The first one is both answers had John the Baptist alluding to They were focusing on the teaching of Jesus, so much so that they were like, Jesus is such a great teacher, he reminds me of John the Baptist. In fact, it might be his second coming, John the Baptist, raised from the dead. 
The second part of Jesus' ministry that they focus too much on is his healing and miracles. We see this a lot in the Gospels, and so people are thinking, wow, Elijah did that in the Old Testament. This could be Elijah again. And the third one is prophecy, as Jesus would foretell what would happen and um, prophesy future events. They must have thought, wow, this is maybe just another one of the great prophets. See, the mass majority focus so much on certain aspects of his ministry that they miss the most important part of who Jesus is. But praise the Lord. This is where Peter hits the nail on the head. He says, uh, you are God's Messiah. He answers correctly. Peter knew the truth that Jesus, while being a great teacher, healer, prophet, was great, but Jesus was much more than that. He was the Messiah. He was the one who came to save and to forgive people of their sins. Now, I want to flip back to Matthew's account in, in chapter 16 of Matthew because Jesus responds to Peter in that account that we don't see here, and it's crucial as we continue um, this lesson, the sermon. In Matthew 16, Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you, to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, you will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I'll bring up this response from Matthew's account, um, because if we pay attention, Jesus says, not even the gates of Hades will overcome it. And this is going to be super cool, so stick with me here. Okay, so when it says, will not overpower it, it is really referring to the church, that Jesus is saying that Peter will be the foundation and the rock of. And his disciples are standing near the cave of Pan at this point, probably. And this cave is believed to be the gate to the underworld, a.k.a. Hades. And so when Jesus is saying not even Hades will overpower it, he's standing by this Greek god, pagan cave that is, is used to worship this Greek god. It's also referred to as the gateway to Hades. And he says, and not even that will stop you. What a much-needed encouragement to the disciples as they are in this pagan area, a truth that no matter what majority culture says, does, or believes, will stand firm. The truth that the church of Christ will not be overpowered by pagan beliefs or practices. What a crucial encouragement for the disciples at that time. But how much more crucial is it for us today? I believe that we need to be reminded of the same encouragement that no matter what majority society says, does, or believes, the church of Christ will not be overpowered by pagan beliefs or practices. No matter what happens in politics, no matter what happens during the pandemic, it will not overpower the church of Christ. As we are told by Jesus that the gates of Hades will not overpower it. No matter how much chaos seems to be going on in this world and how much we see sin take hold of society, still will not overpower the church of Christ. Let's be encouraged, brother in the Lord. Be hopeful, sister in the Lord. Take heart, child of God. Cling to Jesus 
as he still whispers to us in a still small voice, John 16, 33, where he says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have overcome, I have conquered the world. I've overcome the world. So Christ follower, cross point member, daughter or son in the Lord, confess Christ. Confess Christ in whatever you do and wherever you go. Confess him boldly. Confess him without shame. No matter where you're at, no matter how pagan society seems to be, no matter who you encounter, make sure you and I are like Peter and we confess Christ as Lord no matter the situation. Jesus continues his dialogue with his disciples in verses 21 through 22. So back in Luke 9, let's pick this back up. Verses 21. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, to be killed and be raised the third day. I just want to pause there. This brings us to our second point of this conversation, second point of confessing the true Christ. Now, this passage that we just read can sound kind of weird. Why would Jesus not want his disciples to tell people the truth, the greatest truth that is ever known to man? Why would Jesus say, hey, no, 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 be silent about this. I don't want this to get out, not just yet. It doesn't make sense to us. We got to look at verse 22 again, and hopefully it will. Verse 22 says that it's necessary for him to suffer, to be rejected, killed, and raised on the third day. Okay, so from this, we can conclude this, that Jesus did not want people, majority society, to get the wrong picture of why he was here on earth. Because if people got the wrong picture, they would be very tempted to think that he was on earth to give them whatever they wanted, a cushy lifestyle. A lot of people expected Jesus to overthrow the Roman government and to stop persecution of the Jews. A lot of people expected Jesus to provide a situation, provide a life without struggle. Now, we know that Jesus came to be our spiritual Messiah, to take the burden of our sin for people so that they can have a right relationship with God. We know that Jesus came with a different mission. And we know that he doesn't promise us um, a life without suffering. In fact, it's just the opposite. Now, there's one thing that has stayed true in this passage, and there's one thing that is different from when Jesus spoke these words. The one thing that has stayed true is this, that we need to confess the true Christ. So when we're confessing Christ, wherever we go and whatever we do, we need to be reminded to confess the true Christ. And this means to confess that the Christ, that Jesus who came, saves us from our sin. We need to confess that he did not come just to provide us a comfortable lifestyle like some of the prosperity gospel preachers do in our day and age. But rather, we need to confess the Christ who came to sacrifice himself, 
We need to confess the Christ that calls us to be like Him, which means we also need to suffer with Him. Because God has called us to be transformed into Christ-likeness. We call this process sanctification. It includes suffering, includes rejection and persecution. So don't be shocked when you suffer for the sake of Christ. And when people make fun of Christians, when people point out um, uh, different uh, things that they don't agree with Christianity, we should not be shocked, nor should we blow up in defense because they're like, no, 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 no. This is what Christ has called me to, to suffer for Him. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says this, The Spirit Himself testifies, together with our spirit, that we are God's children, if children also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we also may be glorified with Him. Remember the ending of, of John 16, from earlier today? Jesus says, we will endure suffering in this world, but be courageous, be comforted, for Christ has conquered. He has overcome the world. This has not changed. This has not changed since the day Christ said this. He came to suffer, and because we're in the process of becoming Christ-like, we also are called to suffer for His name's sake. Now, the one thing that has changed since Christ said this, because before this, Christ hadn't died yet. But after this, we know that Christ died, was raised to life, and He uh, told us, commanded us to not be silent about his true identity. We need to proclaim his truth to those around us. And he said this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came near to his disciples and to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. We're in this new era where Christ has already died and been resurrected. He commands us to not be silent. He commands us to go out. So I ask you, when was the last time you went out, out of your own self, to talk about Jesus to someone else? It could be your own child. It could be your spouse to spur them on to be more Christ-like. It could be a coworker. If this is a commandment that God has called us to do, because we are not to be silent, but we're supposed to proclaim, we're supposed to confess Christ, confess the true Christ, which, yes, is offensive, and you will have very interesting conversations with people who may disagree with you. But we're commanded to do it nonetheless. So, Christian, Christ follower, who was the last person, when was the last time that Christ has taken hold of your conversation and you proclaimed him to someone else? I want you to think about that. It's a challenge for me as well, as I am given the responsibility to shepherd, and if I'm shepherding without Christ in those conversations, then I'm not really truly shepherding at all. Such a challenge just for me, as well as it, it is for you. Who was the last person you confessed the true Christ to and had a gospel conversation with? 
Now, I say all that to say this. Confessing Christ is a lot easier said than done. Yeah? Amen? Yes? I'm not the only one who thinks this. Yes? I get nervous every time. Yes? Okay. Cool. I know I'm not alone. Praise the Lord. But confessing Christ does come with a cost. And this is what Jesus finishes up his conversation with his disciples with. And it brings us to our third point in this message, that confessing Christ comes with a cost. You see this in verses 23 through 27. So pick up your Bibles again. Meet me back in Luke 9, verse 23. And then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and that of the Father and the holy angels. And truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is a very key passage to understanding what it means to uh, live in such a way to deny ourselves and to proclaim Christ. Because confessing Christ, confessing the true Christ, comes with this cost. And the cost is to sacrifice your fleshly, selfish desires for His namesake. The key verse to understanding this section of scriptures is verse 23. So let's, let's just reread that one verse. He said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So I hope you see that by denying ourselves, we deny what we selfishly want for our lives and we put the name of Jesus first. We put that on ourselves instead of our selfish desires, and we make him known as we walk, knowingly that we will be persecuted just as Jesus was. And if we don't do this, if we are ashamed to do this, if we do not profess Christ and carry our cross daily, he warns his disciples that those who do this, who want to save their life, who are way more worried about what makes them feel good or what they want to do, he warns them, they will lose it. They will ultimately lose their life in eternal judgment as they are casted into hell forever separated from God, the only source of true life. But for the person who puts aside their worldly, their worldly desires, follows hard after Jesus, will ultimately save their life eternally as they are welcomed into heaven and to be with God forever and ever, not on anything that they've done, but because they believe in the work that Christ has done for them. Now, um, I was kind of battling whether or not to, to put this next part in the sermon because it just happened, and I, and I added it last second, and, and I think um, this will be a good example to talk about. This, this truth, this reality that those who save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life in this earth will ultimately save it, really hit home for me this week. 
as my grandpa Schrock went to be with Jesus this past Thursday. He was a godly man who was unashamed about his relationship with Jesus, served his local church and family with his sacrificial love. Now he gets to be with God forever, enjoying his presence, enjoying to be with Jesus forever and ever in heaven. And I truly believe that my grandpa Schrock lost his life on earth, and now he has his eternal life with Jesus. In fact, I, um, we were able to FaceTime him um, while he was still with us, and uh, I told him, I said, you know what, you're one lucky son of a gun because you get to see Jesus before I do. I was like, praise God. And I know he is enjoying um, the presence of Jesus this very moment. Now, back to our passage. I want to note something about 20, verse 27 quick before we conclude this message because this really um, will connect and come full circle to what our topic is today. Verse 27, truly I tell you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now this verse has brought up some controversy over the years because some people see this verse as saying that Jesus said that some of his disciples wouldn't die before Jesus came back. If this is true, this would make Jesus out to be a liar. But we know Jesus isn't a liar, so how do we uh, rightly read this verse? We should read it and understand the context of the next section of Scripture. When Peter, John, and James see the kingdom of God through the transfiguration of Jesus. So in the end, he wasn't lying. Jesus didn't lie to his disciples. He was telling the truth that when he would be transfigured in the next section in verses 28 through 36, that some of his disciples would actually see the kingdom of God in that moment. So we see here that he was telling the truth. Jesus is trustworthy to what he says. We can get this from this one verse. Why? Why can we trust this? Because Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, God in flesh. I'll say this again. Jesus is trustworthy of what, to what he says. Why? Because he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is God in flesh. He alone is truth. The story of Jesus just isn't just another good feel story. It isn't a story that is on equivalent, the Christian equivalent of a Greek mythology story. It is not there. This actually has, re, this is reality. It has facts that back up and evidence to prove this is real. To not believe it, to not believe it, church, those who are watching online and those who are here, to not believe the truth, to not to accept this as truth, would be insanity. To know something that is true, something that would save you, something that, would, uh, something that helps you enter this right relationship with God, to not accept that and to try to do this on your own is insanity. Why? Because insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, accepting different results. If I believe that I can do good and achieve a certain status, but then I found out that I'm not doing so good, and that continues because I'm a sinful human being without Christ, I'm always going to achieve the same results. And that's sin, bondage, separation from God. But with Christ, I can change that. 
with Christ, my relationship goes from um, separated eternally from God, and that's where my destination is, to being one with Him, which is our purpose, which is why we were created to be in relationship with Him. So, if someone asked you, who is Jesus? What would you say? And how, and does how you live back up what you are saying? If you're confessing to be a Christ follower, are you willing to sacrifice your selfish, worldly wants in order to follow more after Him? Because in the end, how you answer this question of who am I that Jesus asks you will define who you are. If you say Jesus is Lord, meaning not just acknowledging that he is the Lord over everything, yes, he's the creator, but if you confess him to be Lord of your life, to have control of your entire life, every single area of your life, that's what it means to confess him as Lord. If you do that, you will change how you are defined. Because now you are defined as chosen. You've got confidence in being defined as elected, forgiven, loved, friend of God, saved, blameless, spotless, co-heir with Christ. Hopefully, then you realize that you've done nothing to attain this status, but rather God has done all the work for you and through you, because you are saved by grace alone, not by works. And then it's that phrase of, who am I? will have a different meaning to you. As it's now not Jesus asking you, who am I? It's, it's you asking Jesus back, who am I? As some of the lyrics from a recent Need to Breathe song goes, who am I to be loved by you? Because you realize your position and your status. And none of us are worthy of it. And it's only by grace alone not by works, that we attain that status. I'll close with this thought. Even though we know Greek mythology isn't real, I'm circling back to this Greek god pan thing, so hopefully you remembered everything that I said, because I'm about to make a really interesting, neat, cool connection, and I hope you stay with me with this. Even though we know that Greek mythology isn't real, it's something that we know people have worshipped in the past, sometimes presently. It's pagan. It's false. Even though we know it's not real, there's a very intriguing ending to the story of Pan. In fact, Pan is the only Greek god who has a story of him dying. The only Greek god who has a story of a god dying, and it's Pan. And the story goes like this. There's a sailor that is named Thamus, and while on the ocean, he heard a divine voice. And the voice told him that the great god Pan is dead. Now, here's the cool thing. The time frame that this legend puts this story, this event, is around the same time of the birth of Christ. You know, something really interesting is that Pan is sometimes identified with Satan, kind of brings back to mind Genesis 3.15 when God says to Satan, he will strike your head 
and you will strike his heel. Meaning that Jesus would ultimately give the final blow to the power of sin when he came to earth to be the sacrifice for our sins. How cool is that, loved ones? So let's be encouraged that we serve the one and true living God, a God who loves us so much that he was willing to die for us. So let's keep confessing. Let's keep taking up our cross daily until we meet Jesus face to face. Let's pray. Father God, I just, God, just thank you for today. God, the fact that each and one of us here are alive and breathing, God, it shows us that you still have work for us to do, that you are still working in us, that you are still transforming us to be more Christ-like moment by moment and even right now. God, I pray that we would humble our hearts, that we would put away our selfish desires, that we would put away our worldly lusts, that we would follow after you, that we would confess you as Lord, and we would be bold about it, bold enough to suffer for your name, to take up our cross daily for it. God, I just pray that no matter what, God, I pray that you'd give us the strength you give us the wisdom to have conversations no matter who we encounter or where we encounter them at. God, we love you. We serve you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.